podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Niaz Ahmed came into bat at number 10 against England in 1969. It was his second test, but his first at home. And him just coming out to the crease got more of an ovation than any of the star batters earlier in the innings. His runs, all 16 not out of them, were cheered by the crowd like they were something special, as he helped Pakistan wag their tail for 246. Later, he would take the new ball, dismissing legendary bowler Jon Snow, while Basil Dolavira made 100. The crowd absolutely loved Niaz Ahmed. And that's because this was his crowd. This game was being played in East Pakistan, or as we now know it, Bangladesh, and Niaz was the first true East Pakistani cricketer to play in tests. Australian player Bransby Cooper was born in Dhaka, Nazim Ulgani and Mahmood played for East Pakistan, but Niaz was actually raised there. And if all this sounds like a great story, it's kind of not. The reason Niaz was playing it all was he was a token. And more often than not, he was forced to be a 12th man, so it appeared like East Pakistan were being represented in the Pakistan team. This is Shahya Khan in his book, Cricket Cauldron. There was a club-level cricketer from Dhaka called Nais Ahmed, who was Pakistan's perennial 12th man for quite some time. The Pakistan Cricket Board attempting to give the entirely unconvincing impression that East Pakistan was on the verge of national representation. The fact was that there was no effort made by the government of Pakistan or by the cricket boards to promote cricket in East Pakistan. Two years after Niaz's final match, Bangladesh became an independent nation and their wait for their next test player would be 31 years. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. And in this season, we'll be looking at the times when cricket nations had their first big win over England. Episode 2 is Bangladesh, looking at their historic win over England to qualify for the 2015 World Cup quarterfinals. Rakibal Hassan Sr. was the first international captain of a representative Bangladesh side, but he did a lot more than that. In 1970-71, threats of civil war loomed over East Pakistan. The death toll in the December war between India and Pakistan may never be known, but almost daily people are finding sites where mass executions took place in what was then East Pakistan and now is Bangladesh. Peter Grant reports. Pakistan President Yahya Khan was making a last-ditch attempt to keep control of East Pakistan. And cricket was part of that. An International Eleven was touring Pakistan at that time. The second match was at Dhaka, and Rakabal was to play for potentially political reasons. Like Niaz Ahmed, he had too been a Pakistani 12th man. Like the rest of his Pakistani teammates, he was given a grey nickels bat that bore the symbol of the Pakistan People's Party. There was no way Rakibal, a staunch supporter of the opposition, would agree to that, and he and a friend covered the symbol with a sticker of the message, Joy Bangla. The same slogan that later in the year would be used during the Bangladesh Liberation War. When Rakibal walked out to bat with Azmat Rana, people heard about the sticker. Chance of Joy Bangla filled the stadium. Rakabal scored only one in each innings, but two of the most powerful runs in cricket. While that match was being played, the civil war started. Students attacked the stadium, fires were lit, and one player from the international team tried to get them to stop. It didn't work. Safraz Nawaz was at the crease, batting to draw the game. As the crowd approached, he asked a soldier to fire at them. The soldier aimed at Safraz instead. The Pakistani players left Dhaka that night, but Rakabal stayed. Before parting ways, Zahir Abbas said goodbye to Rakabal, assuming that they would meet again in Karachi. Rakabal replied, 
Zahir, the next time I come to Pakistan, I might have to come with a new passport. Rakabal took an active part in the Civil War. A shoot-at-sight order was issued on him. He lost family and friends, and he eventually escaped to Kolkata, where he worked towards building a cricket structure in Bangladesh. Six years later, he faced his new nation's first delivery as captain. Yet as much as cricket is now part of Bangladesh, for a long time, football was actually a much bigger thing. In 1937, the Dhaka district football team beat a visiting Islington Corinthians football team, and football became a national obsession in Bangladesh. But cricket was still there, and you can trace it back to the 1850s. Bangladesh's history in test cricket is short and long. They played their first test in 2000, but hosted tests as early as 1955 as part of Pakistan, which was actually the first test on Pakistan soil. New Zealand won their first test series in Dhaka in 1969, and until 1971, 13 different East Pakistan teams played first-class cricket in Pakistan. Their first major international cricket was in 1979 as the original ICC trophy, which was about getting qualification to the World Cup. They beat Fiji and Malaysia, but lost to Canada and Denmark, so they didn't progress. They qualified for the Asia Cup in 1986, and Pakistan rolled them for 92. In 1988, they hosted the tournament, but that same year they lost again to Denmark, but also to East Africa and Malaysia at the ICC trophy. In their formal ODIs, they lost their first 22, mostly by over 100 runs or by a lot of wickets. In 1998, they beat a quality Kenya team to win their first one-day international. They would go on to win two more the following year, and they would be their most important wins in Bangladesh's history, beating Scotland, who was a rival for test status at the time, and then Pakistan, the match that actually won them that test status. The Pakistan win is such an important moment in Bangladesh's history. But it is a game that's also been under match-fixing cloud from almost the moment it occurred. It was in the heart of Pakistan's fixing era, and somehow Pakistan were good enough to make the World Cup final and lose to a team with only two ODI wins. Bangladesh wasn't even the best associate team when they were given their status. Somehow they leapfrogged Kenya, who had beaten the West Indies in 96, and then had the best tournament of any associate in 2003. There was also plenty of talk that their test status was brought through to give the Asian bloc another vote within the ICC. But all of this is unfair to Bangladesh, who had a proud long history in cricket. They had beaten Pakistan, and it wasn't their fault that Kenya wasn't given status. And I can't imagine any nation around the world giving up test status because they thought another team deserved it as much as them. Now, if Bangladesh had had a good start in tests, this would have changed the perception. Instead, they lost 29 of their first 50 tests by an innings. It was brutal. But new test teams often struggle. The difference here was that there was the baggage of them being promoted and the fact that it was reported around the world by places like Crickinfo. For Bangladesh, there was kind of nowhere to hide. So Bangladesh tried something that probably seemed like a good idea if you know nothing about sport and building a culture. They replaced their middle-aged and older players with a bunch of youngsters. It was around this time that I started referring to them as the Play-Doh Tigers. I do understand why a team might think this is a good idea. Their early players were limited. Their best batter was Hababal Bashar, an aggressive batter who loved to hook and was clearly a top-quality first-class player. Had he grown up in a more developed cricket culture, he probably would have been a quality test player too. Instead, he hooked his way to an average of 30, but did score over 3,000 test runs. There are two problems with starting test cricket as a nation. The first is finding quality test players, and the second is a lack of institutional knowledge. There isn't much you can do about the first unless you have an incredible domestic system or have access to someone else's in the case of, let's say, Ireland or Afghanistan. 
Bangladesh hadn't had access to Pakistan or Indian first-class cricket in a generation. And while their own league wasn't terrible, Wasam Akram and Raman Lamba played in it, it still clearly wasn't a top-quality domestic setup. And so the players that came through that domestic setup were Khalid Mashud and Javed Omar and Muhammad Rafiq and Bashar. They didn't have great records, but what they had was a knowledge of how to survive, what test cricket was about, how to handle different kinds of bowlers, pitches, conditions, press packs. And Bangladesh moved all that on and let a bunch of talented kids learn again on their own. They basically started test cricket twice. With a young team and ODI cricket being so popular in Bangladesh, it seemed natural for them to take to the white ball. And the new players looked suited to it as well. Tamim Iqbal was a naturally aggressive opener. Shakib Al-Hassan was close to the ideal ODI player. Mushfika Rahim was industrious with the bat and could also take the gloves. Mashrafi Multaza was a solid seamer and a decent bat. And Mohamed Ashrafur looked for a little time like he could be an Aravinda de Silva type figure for them. Someone who learnt from the guys who had to tough it out, but had the talent to punish top-level international players. Ashrafur made international hundreds against Australia, India, and five against Sri Lanka. The one against Australia won the match. He smashed 92 from 54 balls against England. But after 261 matches, he ended up averaging 22. He had greatness in him, but it was mostly drowned out by constant failure, and he was very much representative of Bangladesh cricket. There was no doubt that there was something there, but it was stuck in a permanent adolescent phase. But perhaps the most remarkable moment of Ashraful's career was that at 17, he made the youngest Test 100. He was everything to a country desperate for success, in cricket or really anywhere at that point. You see this a lot in cricket. Developing nations desire a figure to represent them. And in cricket, one of the most nationalistic sports, it just pushes that. Ashraful could have been Bangladesh's Victor Trumper or Rashid Khan. Instead, he found failure. But what happened next was actually much worse. A five-year ban for match-fixing followed, and Bangladesh's Luke Skywalker had turned to the dark side. By the 2015 World Cup, Ashrafal should have probably been the captain and a veteran, and instead he was serving his ban. Bangladesh picked Mortaza as captain, who was a stopgap measure for a man with no working cartilage left in his knees. It's worth going back to the previous two World Cups. In 2007, they had hinted that they were finally coming good, They beat India in the first round and also South Africa in the Super 8s. But their overall record was still three wins and six losses. In 2011, they won three and lost three, and that was obviously a World Cup that was at home. And one of those matches was against England. It seems weird now, but for whatever reason, England suddenly found themselves playing Bangladesh over and over again, a home and away series in 2010. And it was that year when Bangladesh travelled to Bristol and had a great performance with the bat and ball from Mortaza where they sneaked home by five runs. Tamim Iqbal in 2010 is probably worth a mention. He played two tests and scored 55 and 103 at Lords and 108 at Old Trafford. He became the first Bangladeshi cricketer to be named the Wisden Cricketer of the Year. This was a big moment, their first win over England and also coming away from home. But by that point, they'd already won enough games that a bilateral win against what was a fairly ordinary England side wasn't quite a magical thing. But Bangladesh playing England at home in a World Cup, where you need to win just to stay a chance of making it to the finals, that is a big deal. They bowled England out for 225 and at 169 for 8, it looked like Bangladesh was gone, needing 57 in 62 balls on a tough batting pitch. They put on 58 from 56. 
Sadly for them, that wasn't the only 58 they managed in that World Cup. Against the West Indies earlier in the tournament, they also made 58. The local fans were so upset that they stoned the team bus. But sadly for the West Indians, the Bangladeshi fans stoned the wrong bus. I think that shows how the fans were feeling at the time. They were desperate for this team to come along. And while Bangladesh would end up winning half their games, again, they didn't make the finals. That was two World Cups where they had at least one important games. But the problem was that the next World Cup was going to be in Australia. The last two had been at home and the West Indies, where conditions had been a little bit in their favour. Now they were limping into a World Cup with a makeshift captain and the worst win-loss record in the previous two years of any full member nation. They had won 10 ODIs in that time, six against Zimbabwe, but they had actually whitewashed New Zealand at one point. They'd only managed to score over 300 twice, and they'd been bowled out for under 100 the same amount of times. Their batters were averaging 26 runs, while their bowlers couldn't keep the opposition down to under 32, which meant that they were six runs per wicket worse off than the teams they were playing against. And they were also scoring a lot slower than their bowlers were allowing. This was fundamentally not a good ODI team going into that 2015 World Cup. Luckily for them, their first game was quite handy, a matchup against first-timers Afghanistan on the large Monica playing service that wouldn't help the Afghan hitters. Bangladesh won that easily. The next game, they took a point for Australia due to a washout, a game they probably weren't expecting a point from. Sri Lanka made 332 for one against them, about as brutal as you can get, and Bangladesh barely got within 100 runs of it. Then it was Scotland, who set them over 300 at Nelson. It was a great chase. They got there with six wickets and 11 balls in hand. It might not have seemed like much, as at the time Scotland wasn't as strong as they would go on to become. But Scotland actually played some very good cricket in that tournament, and chasing 300 in a must-win match in New Zealand was still a big deal for Bangladesh. This meant that after three matches, Bangladesh had enough points to only win one of their last two to go through to the quarterfinals, and their next game was against England. In this season of double century, England will often be the big bad enemy of the team. I mean, that is kind of the point of this podcast series. It's a collection of stories about kids outshining their parents to show that things have changed. This isn't quite the case here. In that two years leading up to the World Cup, Bangladesh were the worst team and England were the second worst team. Put it this way, when Bangladesh first beat England in that first ODI, Andrew Strauss was captain. For the 2015 World Cup, England played like a team that was in the middle overs all the time. It's actually quite remarkable to think that England won the next World Cup, but it's less remarkable when you realise that almost none of the players from 2015 were involved. But as bad as England were, it wasn't like their players were all terrible. Jimmy Anderson had Bangladesh 8 for 2. They rallied until they were 99 for 4. Mushfiqur Rahim and Mahmoudullah were together. Both made their debuts at the time that Bangladesh was pivoting towards youth. And both had been given incredibly long work experience leashes. Makhmuldullah averaged 27 over his first 36 matches with a strike rate of 67 and never passed 60 in an innings. His bowling average was over 50 and he delivered 5.5 overs a game. After 53 matches, Raheem averaged 19 and had a strike rate of 58. He had never passed 60 either and was a very shaky wicketkeeper. But because there was no one else, Bangladesh stuck with him, even as on the eve of the tour, Makhmuldullah didn't pass 15 more than 3 times in 12 innings. They became the experienced players that they once replaced, even if that took a long time. In this game, though, they made 70% of the team's total. The little wicketkeeper who had seemingly stayed a child for a generation, and the all-rounder who barely ever batted in the same place twice, had stepped up exactly when their nation had its best chance of moving forward in a World Cup. Full toss, smashed away. This will be four. 
Oh, oh misfield, and he'll go through for the single. Broad has his hands on his head, and a single for Mamadullah takes him through to his first 100. For Mamadullah, it was his first ever 100, 114 matches into his career. Four days later, he would make another one. It was like he used an eight-year career as a warm-up. These were also Bangladesh's first 100s in a World Cup. But for all that, Bangladesh only made 275 runs. They would need a really good bowling effort. But maybe most tellingly, it was a run-out that started it. After that, though, Mashravi Mataza took over. He was another who had been thrown in young, plucked because of nothing but pace, and then turned himself into a veteran medium pacer because that's what his team needed. Mortaza can barely get out of bed in the morning. His run-up gait is as painful as anyone in world crickets, but he keeps trying for Bangladesh. And against England, he takes two early wickets. Then it's Rubel Hassan who takes over. It was Hassan who only a few weeks earlier had been charged with a marriage crime where he promised to marry a woman, slept with her, and then refused to go through with the wedding. That's a much bigger deal than it would probably sound to people not from Bangladesh. But to go from that kind of scandal to taking four wickets for your country in the most important game in 16 years is some incredible effort. The real problem for Bangladesh was that even though this was a flawed England, 275 was never that far away. And Chris Jordan, England's all-rounder, was batting at number nine. And at number seven was Joss Butler. I just want to talk about Joss Butler here because earlier I talked about how England wasn't the big bad enemy when it came to Bangladesh. But it is worth pointing out the difference between someone like Butler and the Bangladesh team. Butler grew up in Taunton, which is an ancient cricket town. His school was King's College, which had better facilities than anywhere in Bangladesh, from artificial nets all the way through to bowling machines. He wasn't rushed into the team the first time he showed any talent. He wasn't needed to be a national hero at 21, and he got to play with experienced cricketers at club, domestic, and international level to learn his trade. And for 52 balls, he slaughtered Bangladesh everywhere. He treated them like they were that team who couldn't beat Denmark. Is a brilliant shot. It's a lovely shot. Oh, hit that. And he does. 50 for Butler. And then Taskin Ahmed took his outside edge. And next ball, Chris Jordan was run out. And finally, Rubel Hussain came back on. And he took broad. And then with 15 runs to get, he bowled James Anderson. This is how it sounded. Goes for Hero. Bowled him. Full and straight. The Bangladesh Tigers have knocked the England Lions out of the World Cup. It's true that England wasn't the father figure of Bangladesh the same way it was to many other countries in this series. India and Pakistan has relations with them that are far more complicated than England, even if obviously England still plays a big part in what Bangladesh has gone on to become. And also, England were a terrible white ball cricket team at that point. But England had invented the sport and played it at a top level for 100 years before Bangladesh. They were the original colonisers of that country and the lawmakers in cricket and a bunch of old kids with no father figures beat them to move into the World Cup quarterfinal. After the win, Makhbudullah said, I just want to say that I really missed my mother today when we were playing the national anthem, particularly the second last verse. I haven't seen her in a while. And this wasn't something about a family member who had passed. This was a boy sending a message home to his mum in Bangladesh. When writing about this, Muhammad Issam in his piece for Crick Info quoted the Bangladesh national anthem. Oh, mother mine, words from your lips are like nectar to my ears. Ah, what a thrill. If sadness, oh, mother, casts a gloom on your face, my eyes are filled with tears. Since that 2015 World Cup, Bangladesh has won more than half of their ODIs, meaning that they have a better record than Sri Lanka, West Indies and Pakistan. Actually, they also have a better win-loss record in that time than Australia. 
They are now a solidly middle-of-the-road one-day international team. Of course, there's still some way to go. But 46 years after Nia's Ahmed's final match, they are not picked as tokens, but because they are the best of their country. And for the 2015 World Cup, they were in the top eight teams in the world. England, the team who had a couple of hundred years head start on them, were not. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.